Chapter 20 of Harry D. Or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Charlotte Rose. Harry D. Or Making It Out by Francis J. Finn. Chapter 20 In which Willie Tip changes his name and becomes the leader of a mischievous organization. It was in the course of this year that Percy and Tom were instrumental in bringing about a great change for the better among the small boys. In order to make the instant intelligible, it is necessary to say a word about the artful Dodgers. During my first year at St. Moore's, a boy of twelve, with light hair, sharp blue eyes, a nose that turned up slightly, and a fine mouth, which betrayed, in conjunction with the eyes, a strong sense of humor, entered the college. His sense of humor seemed to develop with the passing months, in so far that in the spring he was already recognized as the wag of the small yard. Willie Tip was as good-hearted a boy as ever came to St. Moore's. But he was as faultless as he was good-hearted. When he returned at the beginning of September, he became a leader at once. All the fun-lovers, all the harem-scarum boys, quite a number of the worst boys and quite a number of the best, enlisted under his standard. At this time, Oliver Twist, was being read to us during meals. Tip's sense of fun and lively imagination were taken by the character of the artful Dodger. He procured, one fine evening in September, a set of garments, such as Dickens bestowed upon his too fascinating thief, and taking the pose and mannerisms of his prototype, Master Tip convulsed us all with laughter. From that evening, he answered to the name Artful Dodger or Dodger, as the case might be. Tip was discarded. Next day, Tip persuaded Frank Burdock to start a pawn shop as the Jew, Fagin. Then the inventive young gentleman sent five or six of his companions right and left through the yard for the purpose of stealing handkerchiefs, pencils, and whatever they could discover worth taking out of their fellow students' pockets. You see, Fagin, he said to Frank, whatever we get, we fetch to you. Then you write out a ticket with a number and stick it on. After a while, I'll send one of our pals to the fellow whose goods are in your hands to let him know where they are. Then he'll come to you. Yes, broke in Frank. He'll come along and hit me over the head or throw me over a fence or something. No, you don't, Dodger. I don't want to play pawnbroker. But look, I have a lot of our fellows around to stand by you. When he comes up, you will tell him that you're a poor old man named Fagin and that you can't give him back his goods unless he pays one chocolate caramel for each piece. He won't do it. Yes, he will. Now go down in that corner of the yard 
Get your tickets ready, and I'll have a bench fetched over for a counter. Master Tip had his will, and very soon Frank was standing behind a bench, gay with six handkerchiefs, three lead pencils, two bean shooters, and one memorandum book. Tip was right. The victims of this desperate gang of pickpockets took their losses very pleasantly, and willingly redeemed their possessions with the ever-popular caramel. In this way, 30 caramels passed into Frank's hands up to the ringing of the first bell for studies. Then in a body came the elated band of pickpockets, five in number, to their pawnbroker. Frank, said Tip, you did splendidly. Didn't I? exclaimed Frank. Now, boys, continued Tip, addressing the happy pickpockets. We'll have a square division. Frank, bring out the candy. Frank was astonished. Candy? Why, I ate it just as soon as I got it. Then Frank had to run, as it were, for dear life. The experiment, in consequence, was not repeated. But the reformed thieves still clung to the name of the artful dodgers. Gradually, by common usage, everybody found ordinarily in the company of Tip was set down as a member of the gang, and thus Tip became notorious. In many ways, Tip had the qualities that go to the making of a leader of boys. He was good-natured, energetic, and truth-loving. This latter was a very necessary qualification. As a rule, boys hold a liar in contempt, howsoever various and estimable be his other qualities. But what most of all secured Tip, his leadership, was his power of invention. He was ever devising something new. One day it might be a game, another day a practical joke. Whatever it was, his followers counted on having some fun in the issue and they were rarely disappointed. The study hall was his chosen field for quips and pranks. We had not passed a week at college when Tip created his first diversion in that place of almost sacred silence. Broadhead, a neighbor of his, commonly known as the Anarchist, owing to his bristling hair and his disregard for law and order, taking out a bean shooter, had aimed a dried pea at Tip's face. The pea struck Tip on the cheek. What was the amazement and horror of Broadhead when Tip gave a scream which rang through the study hall, jumped from his seat, and, with much agony upon his countenance, hurried towards the study keeper's desk, exclaiming aloud as he advanced, Oh, Mr. Middleton, some fellows hit me on the cheek with a piece of shot! Mr. Middleton made a sharp gesture, which arrested the young wag's steps. Then he said deliberately, but in so low a voice that only those near him could catch the remark. Tip, if you be kind enough to show me the exact spot on your face where you were struck, 
I'll kiss it for you. Tip never tried a practical joke on Mr. Middleton again. And the anarchist lost his bean shooter. In no wise discouraged, Tip changed his base of operations, or rather his time. The second hour of studies was kept by Mr. Middleton's assistant prefect, Mr. Auber. The night after his encounter with Mr. Middleton, Tip, anxious to make up for his lost prestige, took out his bottle of red ink and, to the intense interest of some of his admirers, stained the tip of his nose red. Covering his mouth and lips with his handkerchief, he rushed up to the study keeper's desk and madly waved his hat. It looked like a serious case of nosebleed. The assistant prefect, who thus far had refused Tip permission to go out every night, nodded assent, and Tip, with a solemn face, despite the wink he bestowed upon his chums, left the study hall in triumph. The joke was an unanimously voted a capital one. So good, indeed, that it was resolved to repeat it night after night with a different boy as chief actor each time. The plan worked nicely for a week till it came to Broadhead's turn. This young man lost courage when, on entering the hall, he found that the prefect of studies, Father Tiemann, had Mr. Ober's place. Indeed, he contemplated abandoning his part when a note from Tip put him on his medal. He daubed his nose, therefore, and advanced. Every boy in the study hall watched the proceeding. Stand here with your nose to the wall, said Father Tiemann. And if you show so much as the tip of it to a single boy during this hour, I'll attend to you privately in my room. There were no further cases of nosebleeding after that. Tip next turned his attention to the yard. Some of his jokes were good. Many of them, I am bound to say, subversive of order. Tip was a good boy in the main, and frequently felt remorse when, as the events showed, he had gone too far. On such occasions he invariably consulted Tom, and it was owing to the latter's influence upon the leader that the artful dodgers did not go to extremes. Even as it was, they worried and annoyed poor Mr. Ober in season and out. One evening a number of us were seated on a bench at the end of the yard, some fifty feet west of the old church building, when anarchist produced a cigarette. I'm dying for a smoke, he observed. Tip glanced about the yard. It was twilight, and Mr. Ober was presiding prefect. I'll tell you what, anarchist, he said. You can smoke right along without the least danger of being caught. You sit where you are, and ten or eleven of us will stand around you. Mr. Ober can tell that somebody's smoking, but he won't know who it is. The crowd thought this an excellent plan, and forthwith a number jumped up and surrounded Broadhead, 
who at once lighted his cigarette and puffed away with great satisfaction. To make matters pleasanter, he passed the cigarette round to a few of his special friends, after the manner of a pipe of peace. Mr. Ober would very soon notice the smell of the burning cigarette, and moved slowly down toward where we were stationed. Of course, the cigarette disappeared long before he got near us. Good evening, boys. We all lifted our caps and tried to look cheerful, but no one ventured upon uttering a word. Poor Mr. Ober became nervous. I thought, he began, then he paused, looked irresolute, removed his hat, passed his hands through his hair, and walked away, leaving Broadhead to resume his smoke undisturbed. On the following evening I took care not to go near the bench, where, as usual, a number of the Dodgers had assembled. As I afterward learned, cigarettes were in abundance, Tip, Broadhead, and several others having made provision, and the air soon became heavy with cigarette smoke. To everyone's surprise, Mr. Middleton, who seldom entered the yard after supper before the sound of the first bell, suddenly appeared. The crowd was about to disperse. Mr. Middleton made a gesture which plainly signified, stay where you are. Now we're in for it, said Tip as the prefect walked rapidly toward them. He can't find out who was smoking anyhow, suggested Richards. Maybe he can't, answered Tip, but he'll fix us some way or other. Shoo, exclaimed Broadhead in a raised voice. He can't punish a fellow if he doesn't catch him. You can just bet I'm not going to take any punishment. Suppose you all sit down, boys, said Mr. Middleton, giving no sign to show that he had heard the words that Bob Broadhead had evidently intended for his ears. All obeyed and vainly tried to look comfortable. Now, continued the prefect, I'm going to give you fellows a lesson in catechism. Suppose a thief wanted to rob a man's house, but couldn't do it without the help of three other men. He explains his difficulties to three of his friends. They come to his help and assist him to rob. He clears one hundred dollars. You understand? Yes, sir, answered Tip. Very good. Now, who is bound to make restitution? Why, the thief, of course. But suppose the thief died, leaving no effects. Who in that case would have to make the robbery good? All three of them, I reckon, volunteered Richards. And suppose all four were proven in court to have had a hand in the stealing. How many of them would be punished? All of them would, sir, answered Tip. Now, apply all this to smoking on the sly. 
It's against the college law, and all concerned in it are liable to punishment. Next time you boys combine to help a smoker, you shall all perform the penance. This time I will let you off. Broadhead, I'd like to have a word with you. The anarchist went about with his history under his arm for the next few days. The irrepressible tip now devoted himself to the washroom, and Mr. Ober was put to his wit's end at times to prevent serious disorder there. He was a timid man, rather retiring, and one could see that he was at loss as to how he should deal with his troublesome charges. He generally confined himself to running his hands through his hair and looking annoyed. The Dodgers used to feel sorry for him, for he was very gentle and they really liked him. But their sorrow was not sufficient to induce a lasting amendment. One morning in December, matters went worse than usual. A quantity of red pepper placed on the stove set all the boys sneezing. The water pipes were stuffed so that the boys had to go outside to the pump with their basins, and when they had returned, prefect and boys found themselves locked out. The locking out had not been set down in the original program. It was a happy thought, at the last moment, of the anarchist. Mr. Auber was thoroughly discouraged. So discouraged, in fact, that he could not conceal his feelings though most of the boys were too excited and too intent on mischief to notice it. There is a certain class of students who, when once they make a fair and successful start in disorder, know not where to stop. During this day it became evident that the spirit of mischief was abroad. After supper the leading members of the Dodger crowd took their places in a far corner of the yard and engaged in an earnest consultation. Tom, Percy, Harry Quip and myself were standing by the washroom. I say, boys, said Tom, Tip is losing control of his crowd. Is that so? said Percy. Why, I thought he could turn them round his finger. So he could, but they're getting the start on him on, of late. And now Anarchist is beginning to get the run of things. Tip feels pretty blue, not so much because he is no longer a leader, but because the Dodgers are going too far and he feels that he's to blame for it. He was talking to me today and I advise him to draw out. Is he going to? Asked Harry. He'd like to, he says but he thinks that by staying with them he can keep them from following anarchists blindly. I tell you what, pursued Quip, those fellows are hatching something now, or I'm badly mistaken. Tip is there, but the anarchist is doing most of the talking. His hair is standing up worse than ever, and if he keeps on getting excited it will raise his hat off his head. Tom, suggested Percy, Suppose we go over and join them. You can do more with them than Tip and the anarchist put together. I should note here that both Tom and Percy were, owing to their popularity, honorary members of the Dodger gang, while myself, Harry and Joe 
were always treated as welcome guests. I've a notion to go down, said Tom. In fact, Tip wants me to help him out. He feels blue about the way Mr. Aubrey's been treated, though he's responsible for nearly everything that's happened himself. And now he's afraid that they're going to give Mr. Aubrey just pecks and bushels of trouble straight ahead. I've been thinking about the matter all day and can't see how to start them in some other direction. Somehow the idea won't come. Suppose we go down anyhow, urged Percy. And once we get the fellows talking, you might strike upon a plan right on the spur of the moment. Well, answered Tom, we can't do much harm and we may do some good. Come on. End of chapter 20